We have several things that um, we need to pray about this day. I only know a few of what may be on your mind and on your heart. So I'd like to remind you that in this pastoral prayer, I am not praying for you. Well, I am in, in one sense. But you need to join. You need to voice your petitions and your requests and your laments to our Heavenly Father. So I invite you to join me in praying at this time. Lord, there are a number of things that come to our mind this day that we want to petition you about. Firstly, we would bring to you the conditions of our president, Donald Trump, and ask that you touch him and touch his doctors and that you restore him to full health. But not only him, but those around him, that they may not only be healthy, but they may be able to return to the service that they have engaged on our behalf. But then, Lord, we, we are compelled to continue because almost 40,000 people a day in our country are entering into the same situation. But, Lord, there Many of them aren't finding out as quickly because they don't have the testing that they need. And even in our own community, hospital beds are full and it's hard to find a place and, and we're sending people to St. Louis. So Lord, we are lamenting today, lamenting the conditions that have been going on far too long related to this virus and the way it's negatively impacted so many of us. So here are laments. Honor them. Know that they are justified. And we pray for not your patience, but your grace, your strength. That as this drags on, we will continue in good works. We will do well. We will do the things that are necessary to keep ourselves and others safe, even though we don't like it. And Lord, that we will continue to serve those we can. And we will recognize and give thanks to those who are serving us. So Lord, open our minds now and our hearts even as we continue to lament, may we hear your word this day. In Jesus' name, amen. So I invite you, please um, sign up for a segment of time. More than one person is welcome to pray. Um, but it's one of the ways that we can become involved and show that we trust that God is involved. This morning our text is found in Matthew, uh, the sixth chapter, 
uh, beginning in the 24th verse. No one can serve two masters. For a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And wealth is a, an interpretation of mammon, which is the name of an idol. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to the span of your life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for all of these things. And indeed, <clears throat> your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. May God's word be blessed in our hearing this day. If you wish to understand and apply this message, then you're going to have to engage with me in a very special act of preparation. I want you to identify aspects of your life that you take for granted. I'm going to give some examples of how I, that helped me with this. You think of your own. Because many times, the things in life that we take for granted, we never think about openly. It's hard for us to consider them, to evaluate them. So unless we're intentional about trying to figure out what it is that we act on that we don't think about, we're lost. So here I go. I believe God has created the world and all within it, including me. Therefore, my life belongs to him. First assumption. Second, I do not believe my faith in Christ offers me any special protection against the threats and dangers of living. 
Third, in fact, I believe that living my life as a follower of Jesus is costly, that it costs me. I do not believe my possessions of or a lack of possession in any material good or benefit says anything about my value as a person, a follower of Jesus. Now, that's a little bit convoluted. I'm telling you, what I have or don't have says diddly squat about me as a follower of Jesus. Is that clear? Okay. You've got to forgive me. Sometimes I get lost in my own head when I'm writing this stuff. And then when I'm saying it out loud, I mean, I've gone over this. Don't think I haven't. Uh, but this is the first time I'm saying it out loud. And my editor, as good as she is, didn't catch that one. I do not make any equivalence between my social status, our possessions, and my success or failure as a follower of Jesus. I do believe that the relative priority that I place on acquiring and using material goods is one of the key indicators, though, to the extent that I have surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. That one's longer. Let me say it again. I believe that the priority I have and that I demonstrate to you and to others on acquiring and using material goods shows you how committed I am to Jesus. I believe that the ability to earn significant sums of money is not equivalent to acquiring material goods. That one's a bit tricky, and I'll explain it later. So hang on. I am a member of a society, and so are you, by, by extent. We are members of a society that cannot experientially relate to the passage we're considering today. This passage is foreign to us. It might as well be Kirundi, as far as you're concerned and I'm concerned. Well, I, I got an advantage on that one. But it might as well be a language we don't speak because this kind of advice isn't part of our culture. Another one that's going to become apparent in a minute is I believe Jesus spoke these words after he had called Judah to observe the sabbatical year, the year of the Sabbath. That, or I'm sorry, the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee that they were supposed to be observing that year of A.D. 26. And I believe this passage addresses the issue of material needs and wealth for everybody, not just those of us sitting in this room. This entire section of the Sermon on the Mount addresses how we are supposed to relate to the world. And in fact, this passage on material things comes at the close of that section. Jesus is not against material goods. If he was, he would be against all society, and that's not possible. All of us exist in societies because we need material things. We've got to eat, we've got to stay warm, um, we've got to clothe ourselves, and these days we got to have a phone. But there are material things we got to have, 
in order to survive, and that's true of every society for all of history. In fact, it's one of the reasons that I believe societies exist anyway, is to regulate that stuff. So Jesus isn't against that. He's not against wealth. And as some would have interpreted this passage, he's not against planning. King James said, take no thought of tomorrow, and that kind of set us off on the wrong direction. That's not a particularly good translation of this, of this passage and that word. His instruction is really about how to live, and that requires us thinking about the next day. So, why do you think Jesus spoke so often? Not just here, but throughout the Gospels. Why did he speak so often about material things? Okay, that leads to my 11th assumption. Materialism is equally possible among the rich and the poor. We'll hear it again. Materialism just isn't a danger for rich people. Materialism is a danger for people. If my assumption is correct, and this is during the year of Jubilee, and if they're actually observing it, then everybody is doing without something. I mean, if they're observing it, they're not supposed to be planting. They're supposed to be living off of what they've put aside or what's coming up volunteer. You guys know that phrase, don't you? About volunteer stuff growing in the garden. Well, that's what they're living off of. So even the rich people are not having it like they normally do if they're observing the year of Jubilee, and that's what it's designed for. It's designed to show that we live at the mercy of God and at the benefit of God and not as a result of our work. It's harder for you and me to see when we're going off to offices or we're going off to factories. It's much easier to see when we're going off to the fields as farmers. And it rains or it doesn't rain. Some of you know, most of you know, I've got a farm and farming business in Africa that has suffered eight growing seasons, four years of drought, which means we're probably going to close pretty soon. But we've had a good run of it, providing work for people in the community. But you, you know when the things that God has put in place work on your behalf in those situations. You may not notice it as readily, depending on where you work. Materialism is not related to wealth. It's related to our priorities. How we define ourselves. And that's why I would prefer that it said you can't serve two gods, God or mammon, because mammon isn't readily identifiable by us as a, as a false god, but it was identifiable to those for whom Jesus spoke these words. It isn't wealth. It's mammon. You cannot be a materialist and serve God. That's not up for debate. Jesus says it as plainly as he says anything else. 
You cannot serve two gods. So you and I should think about it as who's sitting on the throne in the, in, in, in the throne room of our lives. Is it God or is it mammon? We have worked with a lot of needy people over the last 50 years. And many of them are as materialistic as the richest person I've ever met. Because they define their life about the ability to reach certain material goals rather than the blessings God has given them in relationships and health and other things. And I'm not saying people shouldn't be ambitious. But how do you judge success in your life? So, you don't want to do this. But in the midst of this pandemic, while it's happening to other people, in a month, you're out of your house. Don't want to think about that, do you? Brendan and I live in the nicest house we've ever had, and I've done a number of things, and I've worried about my adventures in Africa costing her that house. I like our house. It's close to our kids. But what does it mean if we're out of our house in a month in the midst of a pandemic? Are we any less the children of God? Oh, by the way, your bank account, the reason you're out of your house is your bank account's empty. Is that because you've sinned somehow? In the middle of a pandemic? That's just the way life is working right now. And you and I need to be grateful that somehow we have been insulated from some of these things, but we also need to recognize that there are many or not. And anybody who says that these people are suffering because of sin is an idiot. They're suffering because the world is broken, and we are slow on the uptake to figure out how to fix it or to contribute what we can contribute to fixing it. Three times we're told in this passage not to worry. Take no thought of the morrow. Don't worry. Now, I know I'm running a risk. But as I was reading this passage again this week, all I could think about was that goofy song from, from um, the 80s, I think, or maybe the 90s, about don't worry, be happy. And if I, yeah, don't whistle it, please. It's in my head already. And if I could have figured out how we could have used it in worship, I, it, but it doesn't work. Theologically, it's kind of, well, it just doesn't work. Okay. And so this is the basis of planning and, and people saying God doesn't expect us to plan or to take any idea about things. But I got news for them. This is really more an idea of distractions. Jesus is saying, don't be distracted by wealth. 
Don't be distracted by stuff. Now, there are two disclaimers here. And they both come from the temptations of Jesus. When Jesus is on the pinnacle in Matthew 4, chapter 5, then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you, excuse me, bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him again, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, Jesus is saying, don't be surprised if gravity works like gravity has always worked. And I think Jesus was way too soft on Satan. He should have said, are you stupid or what? Jump off of this. You don't expect gravity to work? So God expects us to do what we need to do. He expects us to work. Birds worked. Now, the, the lilies of the field didn't, but the birds did. Uh, and I've done extensive research, and I cannot find the existence of any Papa John's nest delivery service for worms. The mama and papa birds had to bring it back to the young. But God provided the worms. So gravity is gravity. And if you don't work, you're going to suffer the consequences for that. But if you do work, you don't always get the benefits that you deserve. And life isn't fair. But the first thing here is, in the midst of this passage, is Jesus is not telling us not to plan. He is not telling us not to expect gravity to be gravity. And here's the one we don't want to hear, and I think this is most crucial for us, and that is, is that the cost of discipleship is high. You know who Martin, Bo or not, um, not Martin, Bo Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You, you know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is? Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor in World War II, a pacifist who um, led um, the resistant church. But as a pacifist, in, in late 44, he joined a plot to um, assassinate Hitler. And he was discovered, and he was executed the week before his prison camp was liberated in 1945. But he wrote a book that should be required reading to get into heaven, The Cost of Discipleship. And in the early pages, Bonhoeffer writes, Jesus bids a man come follow him and die. Now the death, is, and he goes on to explain that the death isn't literal. 
But Paul says the same thing when he says we've got to die to the old man, to the old life. And for each and every one of us, the temptation to materialism is part of that old person. We were brought up in it and we were saturated in an environment of it. And particularly by the time most of us in this room were, were hearing messages, we were being told that if we didn't have certain things, life was not worth living, or at least not enjoyable. That's materialism. And you cannot have a consumer economy without producing materialists. Simon Peter and the disciples were in a boat one night. Do you remember the story? Storm came up. They started getting tossed around. And what happened? They got scared. <laughs> Wouldn't you? You ever been in a boat and been scared? Yep. A shallow lake, and, I, and I've never done it here. I'm sure there, there's here. But I've been in a, a shallow lake in Kenya. And when the wind comes whipping off of, a, of, of the mountains, off the escarpment, it can whip up waves quickly. And a shallow lake can make huge waves. I would have, waves. I would have never thought of it. Anyway, these guys were scared. And Jesus comes walking across the water. And good old Peter, you got to love him because he's audacious. He says, Jesus, Lord, bid me come to you. Jesus said, okay, come on. He hikes up his, his robe and he steps over the gunwale and he's, he's on his way out. And he takes a few steps and... In the midst of the storm, what would you expect to happen? Do you think that Jesus made the water calm around where he was walking? Do you think the waves that were battering the boat just kind of disappeared, kind of like for Moses when they parted the water? Do you think the waves parted for Peter? They did not. Peter steps out into that water, and the waves crash against his knees and thighs. And as he takes a step, it doesn't get any easier. And what does he do? He looks down at the water. Quits looking at Jesus and looks down at the water, and what begins to happen? He starts sinking. You see, this passage isn't about not planning. This passage isn't about whether we have an anxiety issue that needs to be treated medically. And you should do that if you have one. This passage isn't about that kind of anxiety. This passage is about the anxiety comes because we are so easily distracted. We have spiritual ADD. So this passage comes as a test, just like Peter's walking. And Peter says, Lord, why did you let me sink? And we say, Lord, why did you let me have this financial problem? Why did, why did I lose my job? Why, why am I not as, as able to get 
recognized and, and get the pay that I deserve. And being the great teacher he is, Jesus doesn't answer you directly. He says, is not life more than food or drink? Is what you wear important? Does the Father love you more than the birds which he cares for regularly? Do you have an answer yet to your question? If not, expect more questions. Because each of us has to come to grips with what is life's true worth. What are the measures of that worth? I've got mine, and I'm sure you have yours. And it is those values that show what is important to us. It are, those are the values that create the patterns by which we live and relate to others. And the degree to which we have conquered our cultural sin of materialism will begin to show itself in our relationships to each other. How do you invest the resources you have? Money, time, love, education, commitments. How do you invest those things? On yourself or on others? Humanity has been created for a purpose. I believe God created me and my life is his. And forgive me my presumption, but I think your lives are his as well. And we need to get that purpose back. But Jesus didn't leave us, leave us without pointing us in the right direction. He didn't leave us out in the middle of that lake with the waves low. You know, crashing over our knees, he said, strive for the kingdom of God. Do this first, and everything else will be added to you. Jesus may not answer all your questions, but he's not going to leave you out in the wilderness without pointers in the right direction. If you don't believe that, then why are you here? If you don't need that, then why are you here? Why are you watching us? There are many more entertaining things you can do than to listen to me. But if by chance, if by chance, well, no, it's not by chance. If by design you catch a word from the Lord, then it's worth your time. If by design you catch a direction from God for the way to live this week, it is worth your time. So don't get distracted about tomorrow. Stay focused. And follow Jesus. Let us pray. Lord, as we prepare ourselves for receiving the Lord's Supper, may we do so aware of the fact that we need you today to show us the way. 
because life's not going to stop hitting us in the legs as we walk. Show us the way, Lord, and may our coming to your table give us a reminder of who you are in our lives and what you've done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.